Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. This is the time in our service when, uh, you know, we take a sinful man comes before you with human words that are given to us from God. And it's a time in our week when we bring ourselves under the written and spoken word of God and bring ourselves to hear what God has for us, what he's telling us and teaching us, and believe that in this time, God is meeting with us as the church gathers with his word open. So we're going to pray that God will do that work in this time together with all the distractions and extra pieces that are part of this, that God still does that through his word. So let's pray for that together. God, I ask you for your care of this time. God, that the words that need to be heard would be heard. God, that your text would be laid plain, that understanding would be granted to us by your grace. And then in doing this, God, you would give us uh, a time of learning, a time of reflection, and that we would be changed because of our desire to learn from you. Pray that that would be accomplished in these few minutes together. In your name, amen. So I remember my first uh, real job out of college. I had the glamorous work of a credit card collection agent. So I was collecting debt on credit cards. And I basically thought of this job as the epitome of a punch-in, punch-out job. I got there on time, and I was 100% devoted during the time when I was there. And then as soon as that clock hit the ending, ending time of the shift, I got up. I got out, got in my car, never thought another moment about that job for as long as I could until I had to show up the next day. I don't know if you've had a job like that um, where you kind of have that view of it. That was me. So I was in that context. I didn't spend a lot of time with my coworkers. I didn't really talk to them. My job was to be on the phone all day, so I basically was on the phone all day. Uh, Didn't really interact with people in their lives, what was going on, didn't connect with the job, the goals of the business. This was just something I had to do to pay my way through grad school, and the soon as I could be done with it, the happier I would be. That was my approach. Then I got a new manager, and his name was James. And James' approach to work was entirely different than mine. He came to work, and he brought his entire self into the job. He couldn't stop speaking with individuals all around around the workplace. He got to know them. People felt like they could really talk to him and trust him. People would tell them their deepest, darkest secrets sometimes, hard things that were going on in their life that they hid from everyone else. They'd share with him the great joys they, they could have. He was also just a remarkable leader and worker. His results were better than everyone else's, and he put, poured all his energy into his team and the company in general. I had the opportunity to work for him, and you know, as he kind of coached me and mentored, mentored me through that process, he really showed me what it was like to really be a Christian in the workplace. He, he talked about not just what we have to do in our job, what are the tasks, the things that you need to do, but he spent great effort to explain to me why he did what he did, how he approached his job as a Christian, and how that changed the way that he did everything, the way that he ran meetings, the way that he hired people, the way that he dealt with discipline problems, the way that he spoke and delivered results for the company overall. Really, every facet of the job was different for him because he was a Christian. And as I got to work under him for a year or two um, at that period of time, it it left a profound impact on me to get a paradigm-shifting view of what could happen in work. 
Several other guys who worked with him at the same time had that same view. And we had an understanding that work wasn't just the end in itself. It was merely a means. Under this, this careful view of him, we began to understand that really working was an opportunity that God gives some believers so that they can impact others' lives and so they can show the love they have for God. This was a remarkable change, right? Who really comes to work with that viewpoint in mind? It's, it's quite seldom. So you think about all the energy, the hours, the efforts, the heartaches that you pour into your job that you do week in, week out. If you don't do that with a focus toward God, then there's a sense in which you're wasting so many hours of your life. There's a sense in which all of those efforts are for naught, and you don't have the ability to uh, have a Godward focus in what you do. So the work in and, itself, in and of itself is worship for us. It's something that we get to do with, in light of God as we go to our jobs each week. And it's a canvas, really, for us displaying our love for God to other people. So this time of being managed to James brought this real key understanding to me that's really the big idea of this message today, which is that God has given us work as a venue to display our love for him. That's what work is, a very different view, that it's God-given and that it's an opportunity for us to display our love for him. So as we dig into that a little bit from this passage here, we need to take a look and understand why our work matters as worship to God. There's a sense in which you might think, similar to how I did, that work is just a necessary evil to make money. And, you know, since the love of money is a root of all evil, maybe it's a bad idea to really pursue money or position in work as a Christian. Or you might be thinking, okay, I don't know about that, but I really do need money, and I do want to advance my job, and I feel that draw in, in your heart, and maybe that's how you've lived. And you may have not really thought about how do I reconcile that ambition with my faith in God? And how do I live both of those elements as true to who I am as a follower of Jesus? When we look at the story of Ruth, we see an example of what can happen through work. Boaz is introduced to us here at the first verse of chapter 2, and Boaz is called a worthy man, as we read the text together. So we've been dropping in some key Hebrew words from time to time, and here's one for you today. The Gabor Chayil, uh, which I might just get by with Chayil from time to time, if you'll forgive me. Um, but that idea of a worthy man, we hear, hear that as the phrase that's used for Boaz in the first verse of chapter 2. The idea of Gabor is just basically pointing to him being a male. Uh, oftentimes it's a warrior, a military term. Here I don't really think that's the intention. It's really just around him being uh, a male leader of sorts in the group. But he's described this word hayil to make this point of worthy. So the word worthy, uh, hayil, that's used here is translated many different times. In some contexts, it's understood as strength, just physical brute force. In other contexts, it's used as capability or character, that skill uh, that's used appropriately. And it can even be used to mean wealth or riches in some contexts. In this story of, of Ruth, it's, it's probably a, a later composition in the Hebrew Bible, it seems that probably the author has a good grasp on all the functions of this word in the Hebrew Bible. And as he brings it to apply to Boaz here, it seems to indicate on the one hand, this is a wealthy guy, okay? He's got land, he's got people working for him, he seems to have done really well, uh, well for himself, if you will, and has earned a great living. So there's part of that that we're supposed to get from this terminology. But on the other hand, there's also clarity in what kind of person Boaz is. 
It speaks to his character. It speaks to how he's achieved this wealth and status in his location. And so that's why your ESV indicates this more with the word, a worthy man, trying to convey to you that there's something about his character, something the way he conducts himself that is important uh, more than just the fact that he seems to be wealthy. As we think about that idea of worthy work and how that functions, an important thing comes into bear. Now, while the word Gabor only refers to men, it's important to see how worthy and this type of work and character is displayed for women as well. So if you go to the next slide, we see a few places where the word worthy shows up. We talked about it here in verse 1 of chapter 2, but actually in the next chapter of Ruth, we're going to see that same word applied to Ruth. It's going to speak to her as a worthy, a hail woman because of her efforts, because of her labors, because of what she has done. So it can equally be applied to men and women in their work. We can see that very clearly from one, one uh, book of the Bible here. But if you go to then another famous passage in Proverbs chapter 31 and the famous uh, words about this great virtuous woman, we see that that word is again used to describe an excellent wife, that her character and her labor as both a wife and a mother is one of excellence or hail in the same way. So what we see is whatever your work is, whether you're called to work outside the home or inside the home as a wife and mother, there is an incumbent uh, way that we should be working as believers, and that is worthy work. And that's why I've kind of entitled this the idea of worthy work. So as we have that understanding, there's a way that you can work in any of those contexts and integrate both faith and work together in your labor. Those two things have to come together if you're going to be worthy in the work that you do. We're going to see from the example of Boaz what that could look like in a work context. And as we go through this, what's important for you to do is be thinking about how does this apply in your workspace, whether that's at home, whether it's outside the home, all the different levels and positions, roles, and expertise that is represented online and in this room. Think about how these elements can be part of your work in what you do each day. As we go through this together, we're going to look at five key marks of worthy work. Five marks of worthy work from this text. So let's go ahead and jump into our first one. If we go to the next slide, we see in verse 4, the first mark of worthy work is viewing others in light of God. Viewing others in light of God. Boaz jumps onto our scene, and the first words out of his mouth in the Hebrew narrative here is to direct is directed at his workers, and he extols them, the Lord be with you. Boaz recognizes his workers as equals before God. He speaks to them as human beings before God, their creator. He speaks with respect and kindness, wishing them God's presence and blessing. And remarkably, his workers reciprocate that back to him. Now, I don't think the application of this is that when you jump on your next Zoom call this week that you need to greet every other participant saying, the Lord be with you. That that may not be the best way of applying this immediately. But what is important is you get the sentiment behind this and how our workers, our co-workers, those under us can be viewed. The contrast of this idea is probably what makes this virtue uh, more stark for us in in, in thinking about other people in light of God. It isn't uncommon for a boss to think of themselves better than those below them, right? Part of this is an overestimation of the boss's uh, performance, uh, his own way of doing things. He thinks that he or she is better than those that are beneath them. So there's a great uh, Dilbert cartoon that kind of conveys this well, right? You know, pointy hair boss guy. 
Uh, pointy hair boss guy says to Dilbert, a study says 74% of managers think they are above average. Pointy hair boss continues, that means 36% of managers aren't aware that they are above average too. Dilbert responds with, to those great math skills, saying, the way I look at it, you're all in the top 110%. Pointy hair boss guy says, exactly, you got it. All right, we've all had that conversation with our boss, I'm sure at one point or another, you're like, yes, 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 you are better, I get it. Um, and you go through that. Oftentimes that can be the case in, in your conversations with one who is over another. And if we're not careful, it can be true of all of us as well as you continue to become over other people in your life. That sense of better goes from thinking you're better because of your education, better because of your work performance, to sometimes just generally seeing your superiority over those that are under you. The issue is that we think those not in our position of authority as less than. Boaz shows us that viewing one another in the perspective with God changes all of that, that very human tendency. It reminds us that we're all needy recipients of God's presence and grace. And it's an equal need that keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves or looking lowly on others. So as you view your colleagues, your coworkers, your direct reports, or your children, are you closely recognizing the idea that you too are needy of God's, needy of God's grace and presence? How would this change the way you think and speak when you're in context with these folks? How would you act differently if you kept in mind the fact that you're on an even playing field with these individuals and you all need God's grace and his presence? This is the question for when you step into that homeschooling space or hop on a Zoom call. How are you viewing the people that you're serving and leading in that time? So that's one of the first marks of worthy work. Secondly, on the next slide, we see we are managing to empower others. This comes out in verses 5 through 7. Boaz has an appointed guy to take care of things in the field when he's away on business in Bethlehem. The individual is described as a young man, which seems to at least indicate that he is younger than Boaz. I'm not saying this is necessarily that he's on the Greater Bethlehem 40 under 40 list necessarily, but he's a young guy and he seems to be doing okay. He's a foreman in Boaz's field um, and he's taking over this, the responsibilities for that day. Boaz assumes that there is responsibility by this young man and that he would be aware of what's going on in the field and so he directs questions to him in the text in front of us. He asks him who this young woman is, assuming she must not be alone, as that would be unlikely in the culture of the day. The young foreman, foreman gives an explanation of who she is, gives some comment on Ruth's work ethic for the day. Now, a couple of things are evident from this rather brief uh, depiction here. Boaz has put someone in charge. He's given him responsibility to manage the field, trust his judgment and to assess, uh, trust his judgment to assess the work and also to care for matters as they come up throughout the day and to ultimately give him a report that he can trust. So Boaz has assumedly empowered and really entrusted the function of this field to this young foreman. Again, you might be hearing me say this and kind of reading through this and thinking that's a pretty small matter, but who hasn't seen a boss who is unable to delegate, who doesn't trust others, and who can't set others up to own an initiative, a project, or a team without jumping back in to make all the decisions after the fact. I think we've all witnessed that at times or another. So the previous point about how we view a person in light of God means that as a gospel person, we can and should believe 
that the common grace of God, which, been, which has been given to us uh, to be successful in our work, can be extended to others to empower them to also take responsibility. So whether you're a parent who's struggling with helicopter tendencies or a business owner who can't seem to ever find anyone to do the work as good as you can do it, in those circumstances, you aren't showing worthy work. You aren't managing others to be empowered to take responsibility. This takes work on your part to teach and correct, to guide, to delegate, test, and finally entrust someone to do the work that they should be responsible for. Again, you might be tempted to think this is a purely secular concept, but think about the theology behind this idea and this concept. This work concept is act actually sits on the back of good Christian theology without giving Christ any credit. It's based on the idea of the equality of humanity and the common grace of God, two Christian concepts. And neither of these deny the idea that there are sinful, innate depravity in all of humanity. But think about it. All of us humans, we're imperfect. We're broken. We're sinful people. That's the reason you have to follow up. That's the reason you have to audit. That's why you want to check to make sure that people are doing the right things and not sinning. That's true of humanity. They are sinful. They are imperfect. But then think about it. Just as you are able to act in a specific task or role and take responsibility is a reflection of the fact of the image of God in your life. God, God's image on us as humans gives us the ability to communicate, to be creative, to take responsibility and work within a community of others. That's part of what it means to be human and in the image of God. Because that's true, and because sinful humanity is also true, there has to be a way that that individual who is a sinner can be entrusted with work. Now, without a Christian theology, there's really no way that that can add up. You can't make sense of why a broken person can actually sometimes do good work. The missing element that we're missing is common grace. God gives humanity grace that it doesn't deserve to do better than we ought, left to ourselves. God keeps us from doing all the dishonest and evil things that might be in any of our hearts, believers or unbelievers, and he restrains us from that. And he actually gives us gifts so that we can use the way that he's made us in full extension in our lives and can be productive. So because of, yes, our sinfulness, but God's grace towards us, we can actually accomplish much in our life. If we believe that to be true, then delegation and responsibility with others is a biblical theology concept that fits within the work world. And without it, there's not really a good explanation of why some people can do some work that's good and why you should trust them to do responsibilities. So that's an essential mark. Managing to empower others is actually a statement of good theology in practice. And we see it lived out here in Boaz's example. Let's go to our third mark. Talk about cultivating a positive work environment in verses 8 through 10. It's probably at this point that I should confess that I, I really enjoy the NBC TV series, The Office, with Michael Scott, Dwight Schrute, Pam, Jim, right? We're all, all pretty familiar with that. Um, I've been re-watching this a bit during the crazy 2020 era with newfound enjoyment of the odd work situation many of us may find ourselves in. And as I'm watching these episodes, I come across sometimes those cringe-worthy moments, right? Where you're sitting there and you, oh, don't say, you can't say that. You can't do that. What are you doing, Dwight? What are you doing, Michael? That's, that's the worst idea. And sometimes it's so intense that I like pause it and have to like walk away. I like, I can't just keep watching. It's so horrible. I have to stop watching 
And like, I'll come back to it in a few minutes later and like, we'll resume and it'll be okay. It's just so horrible to think that someone would say that or do that in the workplace. So you have that cringe feeling that comes from maybe watching either the world's best boss or the world's worst boss, depending on how you want to answer that essay question. As you come through that, you have that feeling, and Boaz is the complete opposite in the environment that he's built in his workplace. There's no cringing. There's no awkward feelings as we read about Boaz in this text. Boaz directs Ruth to stay and work in his field, right along his hired women reapers. The environment he creates is described as a place where work can be focused on and without any misconduct. Water is mentioned here as a break room amenity. There's no mention of a Keurig in the verse, but I'm sure if they have one on hand, that would also be on offer. That's the kind of place where he's set up. People can work. People are protected. He meets their basic needs, and that's put forward to them. We read over it very quickly, but these are all intentionally added into the narrative. They're part of the story that's told to us, so we don't miss these remarks about how Boaz lives his life and the way he treats his workers. So what can you do in creating a positive work environment? This might be an HR slogan at times, but it is a mark of following Jesus and how one bears the marks of worthy work in wherever God has placed them. So this is often stressed by human resources departments because of the absence of a Christian ethic and responsibility or we're derelict sometimes as Christians when being present in the workplace to ensure that a positive workplace happens. So that's why HR folks harp on these things over and over again, trying to do everything they can to have these constant um, important elements of Christian faith lived out in the workplace. As Christians, if you're a business owner or a chief leader of a business, then this is literally uh, what sits on your shoulders heavy. God has placed you in a position and he intends for you to build and cultivate a, a, a positive place for people to work, a place where the work can be a focal point and there aren't any awkward office-like moments. Safety and basic needs are met. And you have the responsibility to direct a culture that will, produce, or will protect and encourage human flourishing in the workplace. So doing this well in your role as a, a chief leader or business owner is a way of showing your love for God. If you're a lower level, level manager, you may not have the full charge to change an entire organization and the way that they conduct themselves. But you are responsible for your team, your department, and what behavior is condoned and what is dealt with that is considered inappropriate. Like my boss, James, that I mentioned earlier, this will be noticed by many others around you and will be a chance for your love for Jesus to be on display in how you manage and run your team. It's honoring worship to God in how you care for these elements and these people in your charge. If you're an individual contributor, then first and foremost, you're responsible for your own actions before God. That can mean what you laugh at, what you speak often about, and how you respond to the needs of others as a way of instilling a positive environment where you are and where God has placed you. Anyone taking these actions in the role where God has put them will have an opportunity to, opportunity to display the love of God in their everyday work. All right, fourthly, still with me, the fourth mark is recognizing and rewarding virtuous achievement. Recognizing and rewarding virtuous achievement. There's a 2018 article by Forbes about shocking workplace stats, and it indicated what we already know. 79% of people quit their jobs because of a lack of appreciation. And that recognition is the number one thing that employees say their manager could give them to inspire them to produce great work 
Not higher pay, not promotion, not autonomy, not training, just recognition, aka see me and know what I do, right? That's the number one thing that is important. What we do is we see that Boaz exhibits some of that, that approach in his recognizing and rewarding virtuous achievement. We see that Boaz responds to Ruth's really positive uh, reaction to the kind of environment that he's invited her into. He's recognizing and rewarding what he sees as virtuous actions by Ruth. He's heard of what Ruth has done for Naomi, including the difficult circumstances that she's gone through. And the reward is the recognition and then wishing of God's favor for Ruth. Boaz asks that God give Ruth the reward she is due for her actions and virtue. Ruth understands this particular recognition as favor and kindness. So when you have the opportunity to recognize and reward or extol the virtuous achievement of another, you should do it. It's a mark of someone who loves God, who can speak to someone and affirm the right actions in their life, something that they've done right, something that's praiseworthy. Blessing or recognizing, rewarding the achievements or virtues of others is befitting of a Christian worker. This is something I try to teach in my, my day job, uh, just to give you a small window of what that looks like. When uh, an individual contributor on one of my teams comes and you know, starts this conversation, how do I get promoted? How do I become a manager? What does that look like? One of the first questions I ask them is, who have you recognized for doing good work? And I kind of get this blank stare back at me. Like, I'm asking, like, how do I get more money? I ask, how can I be the boss? And you ask me, who have you recognized in my work? And I said, yeah, that, that's what I'm asking. Like, who have you seen that's doing good work and have you told them about it? One of the key reasons for asking that is it shows that they, number one, are able to assess what is good work. They know when someone has done it. Everyone knows on your team, this person's lazy, this person's a hard worker, this person cheats. Everyone always knows that. Have they affirmed the person who's doing good work? What has, has been their process for doing that? Not only does it show that they're able to identify it, but it also points to the idea that they're able to be humble enough to say that someone else has done a good job. Being able to point that affirmation at someone else shows some of their character. And finally, that's going to be what you need to do as a boss anyways, is be able to affirm someone and tell them what they're doing right, correct what is wrong. So if they're starting to show those elements, those are some of the first things that I look for. That's just a small window of, of a way that I try to do that to ensure that there's rewarding and recognition happening in my sphere of influence. But how can you do that in your work context? When, ha when you see hard work or honesty or humility in the workplace, how, how do you respond? Do words of praise come off your mouth or in the email to make sure that person is acknowledged for those positive traits that you see coming out. That's the marks that we see from Boaz, the way that he approaches his workplace. Then finally, we see one last mark, the fifth one, is exuding generosity. Boaz invites Ruth to the meal and shares food with her. And then Boaz instructs his workers in verses 15 and 16 to ensure that the generous spirit continues in how they treat her letting her work right among the sheaves instead of being forced to the outskirts of the field. No judgment should be shown to her. And again, the generosity, uh, he says, leave some out from the bundles so that she can gather those up as well. So Christians are to be giving people, ones who should be the most generous. We give of our money, and we must live below our means to do so. We give of our time, and we must surrender our calendars to Jesus. We give of our energy, in service and labor for Jesus, and we must seek God for the stamina to do it. So an ungenerous Christian is improper. It's, it's out of order. It's out of step with the gospel to not have a generous spirit. 
If we've been given so much through Christ, how can we, be, how can we not be generous with all that God has given us? And this includes the sphere of our work. Just two quick places where you can think about what generosity could look like in some of our work contexts. Includes the idea of giving jobs or references from our sphere of influence. I know of multiple individuals in the church who have extended job opportunities and offers to others. That's not just a matter of a good old boys club or a matter of who you know, but a mark of generosity because of who knows us. Another area where this comes up in being generous is how we treat women in our workforce who may be going on maternity leave. It's an odd thing in the business world. There's kind of a political piece that's out here, and there's also a reality of, yeah, that's going to mean a lot of extra work for somebody in, in this process. How do you respond? How do you speak and treat and respond to either a woman going on maternity leave or returning from maternity leave or deciding to leave the workforce altogether because she'd rather stay at home with her children? In all of those places, you have an opportunity to speak as a leader, as one who's affirming and generous with your words and your time, your labor, and at times monetarily being generous, knowing that that is a good thing that God has designed in his creative order to happen. And we can affirm it in our actions. Generosity in the workplace is a mark of one's love for God that will be noticed. But it even goes beyond just in the workplace. We saw in, in the story of, of Ruth, as we looked at it last week as well, that as Boaz's generosity had an impact beyond the workplace, as Ruth came home with all of this, this uh, gleaning wheat that she brought back, Naomi sees it. And she turns and she praises the boss. Whose field have you been in? Look at what this guy has done, that he's done this. And then where does her thought turn? In verse 20 of this chapter, she turns to praise the Lord. Naomi, who's been dealt with very bitterly by the Lord, when she sees the generosity of a business leader, a person who's laboring in a way to show worthy work, turns and praises the Lord with her words. Completely remarkable action, which shows us that as Christians in our work, it does matter how we approach it. It does matter that we do this in a Godward way. It's in line with the words of 1 Peter 2.12 that says, as we live properly among unbelieving neighbors, or we could say co-workers, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You will leave a mark on others because of your generosity as a wor and doing worthy work. All right, so hopefully it's a little different look at our text today, but real important elements of how Boaz acts in the narrative and part of what we're supposed to capture and one of the reasons we take a second look through this chapter. By way of application, I have two questions for you. The first question is, how's your work? Are you working to leave a mark? Is it merely for yourself and your great career endeavors or are you leaving a mark for, for the Lord in what you're doing? Are you working in such a way, thinking and praying that your work would be a worthy reflection of your love for God? Are you asking God to impress on your coworkers the fleetingness of wealth and the vapor of this life that they might grasp eternal realities? Do you view work as merely a necessary evil or will you shift your thinking now to view your work as what God has called you to in order to show your love for him? It's a very different approach in how we can come to work. And that's one of the things we should be thinking about in whatever God has called us to do and wherever he's placed us. And that second question is, what's the kind of magic or energy or excellence that you bring to work? You know, one of the ways we can think about this in a more biblical refrain is to ask, like, what are you boasting in? When somebody goes, you're a great worker and you're, you're doing good work, what is it that maybe comes to your mind? Are you thinking, yeah, I worked really hard in school, I'm a really smart person? Do you think, yeah, I really got those PowerPoint skills down pat? 
or I'm a great organizational person, or I just work harder than everybody else here. Or do you recognize that God has placed you in this position, that God has gifted you, and that God has placed you here in such a way to show his love? I mean, kind of just your prayers, your self-talk, your thoughts to think about how you respond in those moments and what you're bringing to the table in your work context. Are you seeing that you're there to show off the love that you have for God? So we need to work hard, build businesses, advance careers, develop our children and homes. But in doing all of these things, it's the mark, the impression we will leave of Christ on our work and others that is the measure of what is worthy work. By way of conclusion, one other comment I wanted to bring up. A little different look at the text here. And we see that work is important. So just think about how this plays out in these, uh, these two phrases here. The first is uh, a common quote we hear from Mark Twain that's really present, I think, in the 21st century Bostonian uh, ethos, like what we're aiming for. Find a job that you enjoy doing, and you will never have to work a day in your life. Doesn't that just seem like the greatest aspiration? Everyone's aiming for that. If I can just love what I do, and I'll work hard for it. Now, I have questions on that both theologically and historically and probably globally if that's actually a legitimate claim that you can seek to really have that much love for work. But think about the difference in these words that we've learned here from Boaz and his example. Do you see work as a gift God gives to show your love for him? If you see it that way, it will show in your work every single day. So I don't know if you're going to end up with the greatest job that you're going to love every day that you jump out of bed. I'm going to probably guess not. But what you can do is ensure that wherever God has placed you, whether it's short-term or long-term, that you are living to show that God is worth your love, that God is the one that you truly love, and that comes out in the way that you work each and every day, and that's the difference. That's what's going to show that you have a greater treasure, something to bring to this that's going to honor and worship God more fully. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would use the men and women in this room and joining us online in all the contexts and spheres that you've placed us. God, I ask that you would be using us to achieve great work in the world. God, I just think of all the organizations that are represented that could be influenced, that could be shifted to follow you in some ways. People who could be loved, who would otherwise be overlooked. Ways that we could extend your kingdom in each of the areas that you've placed us. God, I ask that you would give us a heart to show your love in wherever you've placed us in this coming week. We do that in your honor, in your name.